Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for those who got here today. God, as Jordan said, we are a, a family here who wants to hear from you. We are not here for mere ritual or routine, God, but we want you to speak to us, to shape us. Would you give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we come to your word, that we would think well about these things and that you would convict and encourage wherever you need to. So God, be with us now. Would you send your spirit to help, help me, help us as we come to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last Sunday, I was here after the service, after the 11 o'clock, and uh, I was talking to a few different people, uh, and, a, and a lady who goes to our church named Sarah came up afterwards, and, uh, and I asked her right away, I said, hey, Sarah, how are you feeling? And she said, I, I feel great. I have energy today. Now, if I were to just stop there and say, okay, now that was our conversation, uh, that would sound pretty mundane, right? Like, it sounds pretty kind of bland. That's the pleasantries that we all say. I say, how are you? You say, good. I say, great. And that's kind of how we start a conversation. But let me give you a little bit of the the backstory to Sarah's last couple months. Uh, It was about six weeks ago or so that our staff team got an email uh, from Sarah, and she was telling us that uh, recently she had been struggling with some different health issues. And uh, it had gotten so bad that she had gone to the doctors, they didn't really know what it was, she was trying some medicine, and it just wasn't really working. And her health was kind of declining, and she was really struggling to have any sort of energy at all. And it, was, it had gotten to the point where she couldn't even go to work sometimes. Her, her whole life was kind of uh, struggling because of this problem. And so she emailed, and she said, hey, could you just be praying for me? And so our staff team was praying for her, and our elder team began to pray for her. And a couple weeks later, Sarah got back in touch with us and said, hey, I just wanted to fill you guys in that uh, it appears over the last week or two that God's beginning to heal me. Like, I'm beginning to have more energy, and I've been able to go to work, and the doctors think they kind of know what it is all of a sudden, and things have just kind of completely shifted around, and I'm starting to feel great. Now last Sunday was the first time that I uh, had seen her in the last couple weeks and so she walked up to me and I said, hey Sarah, how are you feeling? And she said, I feel great. I have energy today. Now knowing what had been her last couple months, that kind of pleasantry, just little greeting begins to kind of pop and explode. It's like, yes, praise God, you have energy. Like you're doing great today. That's something that wasn't the story for the last two months, but now it is. You see, that news that she was doing good and that she had energy was nice when you didn't know the backstory, but when you knew kind of the bad part of the last couple months, when you knew kind of the pain and some of the issues that she had, now when she says, I'm feeling great, it just kind of explodes. It's like, praise God. With that reality in mind, the good news really is only really good news when you know the backstory, when you know the bad news, we approach Ephesians 2. You know, we're coming to Ephesians 2, and this chapter uh, can kind of be called maybe the, the core of Christianity, especially these first 10 verses in the chapter. It explains what we call the gospel, which simply means the good news of Christianity. What sets Christianity apart from other religions. It's about this God who loves people, who saves people, who gives life to people, who gives grace through Jesus. But remember, good news is really only good 
when you know the bad news. Because I could tell you this morning, hey, God loves you and Jesus saves you. And that may seem like, okay, cool, right? Like that, that's nice. I'm a pretty good person and Jesus maybe can add on to that and we're good. Or we can take some time to look at the bad news and then when we get to a God that loves us, it should just explode in our hearts. It's like a, a flashlight that in the middle of the day, you flip that thing on outside and it might add a little bit of light. But say you're in a cave underneath the earth and you're down there and it's pitch black and you have a flashlight and you flip that same exact flashlight on that could be the difference between life and death that's complete blindness to now having sight and so what we're going to do this morning uh, is we're going to take a trip together into kind of the cave and the darkness that is our souls our life before Jesus. And we're going to sit there and we're going to sit in the darkness and feel the weight of that a little bit because then next week when you all come back and we flip that flashlight on, it's going to explode in your soul and say, yes, praise God, because I know where we've come from. So that's my goal for this morning as we look at Ephesians 2. So if you've got a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter And whether you want to or not, we're going to take our souls kind of into the cave. And we're going to take a look at the darkness so that we can see the light and the news in greater ways. So here's my big idea. We're going to look at just three verses this morning that was just read for us. Uh, And the whole kind of summation of what I want us to get today is that we need a Savior because we were dead, deceived, and deserving of wrath. It's a gloomy morning, and it's a gloomy big idea, but that's our big idea. We need to believe that this morning, that we need a Savior. I want our hearts by the end of this to long for a Savior, because we were dead, deceived, and deserving of wrath. So let's go verse 1, and let's first look at how we needed a Savior because we were dead. Look at verse uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1. He writes, And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So if you guys have been around for a while, remember that uh, Ephesians chapter 1 that we've just looked at for six weeks is all about uh, how God saves his people and it's from like a, a view of heaven. So all of Ephesians 1 is like this cosmic view looking down saying, this is what God has done. The Father has done this for you. Jesus did this for you. The Spirit came and did this for you. And then Paul prays, hey, would you know this in greater ways? All these things that God has done. Now Ephesians 2, we kind of shift and the perspective changes a little bit. And it's now not God like, like from his view, but now it's from like a, a human view. It's from like an anthropological look at salvation. It's what has God done for man from our perspective. That's Ephesians 2. And so I want you to think about something to start. As we get into this text, if Ephesians 2 is about kind of what God has done for us specifically, I want you to think through this. Ephesians 1 is all about God saving his people. All the things that he has done for his people. While that was happening, what were you doing? What were you doing while the Father was planning your salvation? While Jesus was redeeming you? While the Spirit was sealing you? What were you doing? I think oftentimes we have the mindset that like God was kind of working down and and we were kind of working up. We were kind of 
tag-teaming it with God. And so uh, we were kind of climbing up the proverbial mountain. God was kind of climbing down the proverbial mountain. We met in the middle, and then we both went up. Or God was kind of reaching his hand down, saying, hey, I want to save you. And we're reaching our hand up, saying, hey, I want to be saved. And so we kind of clasp hands, and now we are saved. Well, I think here's Paul's answer. God was working before time to save you, and you were dead. Unfortunately, I think it's about as simple as that. Paul is saying here that as God was working for you and towards you from the foundation of the world, you were dead. Now, as I was looking at this this week, two questions kind of came to mind. As I read that and I say, okay, so while God was working towards us, we were dead, two questions came to my mind. First, why is that true? Like, why are we dead? If that's our state before God, before we had a Savior, why are we dead? Well, he explains it here. He goes on to say, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. John Stott, who's an old British preacher, helpfully uh, kind of explained what trespasses and sins are. He said that, that a trespass is kind of like a, a misstep. It's a false step, something you shouldn't have done. So uh, imagine if you are a sprinter on a racetrack, right? So you got your track, and say you're doing the 100-meter race. You've got your lane that is your lane to run into. You're not supposed to go into other people's lanes. You run in your lane. A trespass would be you stepping over and running in the lane you're not supposed to run in. So there's like guardrails. There's a spot that this is what you're supposed to do. A trespass is misstepping and stepping outside of that. But he also says uh, that you were dead in sins. And the word sin, just it means missing the mark. So here, think of like a, a bullseye. So imagine a, a big bullseye, you've got your rings, and there's this one tiny dot that is the middle, that is the bullseye. And let's call that dot perfection, because that's what God calls us to. And it is, it is only the size of the tip of your arrow. So you miss that mark by just the tiniest bit, and you have sinned. So what he's saying here is, we were dead because we have stepped outside, we've done things we shouldn't do, and we have not lived up to the perfection that God calls us to. I love that Stott says, he kind of sum, like, summarizes all this, and he says, before God, we are both rebels and failures, that we have rebelled from what God has called us to do, and we have failed to live up to the standard that God has called us to. And Paul goes on in Romans 6 to say that because of that, the wages of that, which you've earned, is death. So why are we dead? Because we have disobeyed, and we have not lived up to the perfection of God. Now, second, the second question that came to mind was, okay, well, what does it mean to be dead? Because right? when we think of death... Uh, it doesn't really make sense that we are dead, but we're not dead, right? Like we're living, our eyes are open, we have breath in our lungs. What does it mean to be dead? Well, uh, the Bible talks about death in, in three ways, really. It talks about a, a spiritual death, it talks about a physical death that we often think of, right, when we actually physically die, and then it talks about an eternal death, something that we will face because of our sin. Well, I think here Paul is talking about a spiritual death that we have. Because he's going to say, you are still walking around. 
you're doing things, you're, you're living, and so we, we're not physically dead, and we're still doing things in this world, so we're not facing an eternal death yet, which I think must mean he's talking about a spiritual death. So let me help illustrate that uh, this way. My, my wife and I, we recently finished watching the show Lost, uh, if any of you guys have seen it. Uh, I am going to give a spoiler, but you've had like two decades to watch it, so I don't feel too bad for you if you haven't got to it yet. Uh, but Lost is basically the show where there's a plane crash on an island, uh, and basically all these people have to figure out how to survive on this island. And it's really weird because the first couple seasons are like a Survivor-esque type show, and then it turns into like this weird sci-fi type show, and it, it gets strange. But in the very last season, one of the main characters throughout the whole show is named Saeed. And in the last season, he dies, like physically dead, okay? Not unconscious, not uh, in a coma, like he is dead. He's laying there, and it is clear he's dead. Now, after a certain amount of time has passed, uh, the camera goes back over to him, uh, and his eyes open up, and he kind of begins to sit up, and he kind of starts to walk around, but you immediately notice that while he is physically alive again, there's something completely different about him. He used to be this guy who had done some bad things, but generally was a good guy. He cared for people, he was protecting people, he was passionate about things, and you just saw in his whole countenance something was completely different. One of the characters asked him at some point, they said, hey, what kind of happened? Like, what's going on with you? And he makes this comment that even though he came back to life, he said, I'm still dead inside. There was this weird place where he's physically alive, but internally He's dead, and he says that there's this darkness that's growing in him. There's this propensity for apathy, to not care about people or the good, to be more wicked than he was before. There was something in him that was not the way it was meant to be, even though he's physically walking around. I think the Bible, when it talks about us being spiritually dead, it's, it's talking about something like that. That, yeah, you're physically, you may be alive, and you may be breathing, and your eyes may be open, But there's something in your soul that is not the way it was meant to be. There's something in your soul that you are now following and living in a way that you were not created to live. You were alive, but dead. And what the Bible says is that the the primary way that we know this, uh, the the primary thing that the spiritual death brings uh, is a separation from God. That when God created you, he created you to have life and joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment, and intimacy with Him. And when you're separated, you now no longer have this soul-satisfying fulfillment, and joy, and life. And you're spiritually dead. The Bible says you're, you're blind to the things of God. We were deaf to the truth of God. So Paul says if we are left to ourselves, we are dead in sin. We are spiritually dead, we will face a physical death, and one day there is an eternal death for all sinners. Now, the passage does go on, and believe it or not, it kind of gets worse from here. Um, He says, not only do we need a Savior because you are dead, but also we need a Savior because we are deceived. So let me read verses 2 and 3. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We need a savior 
because we have been deceived. Now, I will admit, the, the word deceived or deception doesn't show up in our verses, but here's why I think it's important for us to see it this way. Because what Paul's going to do is he's listing out things that we follow, or things that we live in, or things that we're trusting in. And primarily, he gives us three. He says that we follow the course of this world, we follow the prince of the power of the air, and we live in the passions of of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So to state it more simply, I think what Paul's saying here is when we are dead in sin, we have three enemies while we're still physically alive. The world, Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, and our own flesh. And here's why it's important to see these things as deception and how we're deceived. Because all three of those things... All three of our enemies will promise you life, joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, and all of them will come up short. None of them can actually deliver what they promise us. And so as we follow them, we are deceived into thinking that what they say will bring us those things, and they don't. And so let me just quickly run through these three and show. Um, And again, just to know, if we are... a a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christian in the room, um, this is our past, this is who we were, but you're going to find these three things have a tendency to come out inside of us. Our hearts are still pulled to follow these things. And if you're a non-Christian in the room, if if you're not a believer in Jesus, um, this is the Bible's uh, kind of, this is its uh, diagnosis of where you are at. This is the Bible saying this is where you're at and why you need something better. So let's look at these three. First, it says that we are dead in sin following the course of this world. Now, that idea of course of this world just means this age. So the age that we live in, the time period of this world. So uh, I'm going to give you kind of a diagnostic question for each of these. So, So I want you to think through here and just reflect on your life Where has or where is currently your heart tending to follow the age of this world? Or in other words, what things does this world offer that you sense your heart longing for? What are the things that the world is promising that your heart just longs for? Let me give you an example to see if this might help think through it. One of the the main lies I think the world will tell us is that, um, that if we just had the next new thing, you will finally be satisfied. This is the core of what marketing is. If you had one more thing, if you had this one more product, then you will finally be as smiley as all the people on the commercials or the advertisements. Then your heart will finally be satisfied? Do you ever sense that you're stuck in the deception that if I could just get the one more thing, then I will be satisfied? Do you ever sense when the new phone or watch or computer or piece of whatever comes out and you just sense in your heart, oh, I got to get that, right? Like, then I'll be happy. Then my life will be better if I could just get this one more thing. Or do you ever say things like, man, if I just had this, then I would finally be happy. If I just had one more promotion, then I would finally feel content. 
If I just had one more zero at the end of my paycheck, then I wouldn't have to worry so much. If I just had one more week off, or one more big vacation, or one more experience, or one more new gadget, or one more person's respect, if I just had one more, then I would have life. You ever find yourself stuck in the trap of uh, searching marketplace constantly, searching Amazon constantly, just searching for, if I just had one more piece of furniture, then we'd be complete. If I had one more accessory, then we would be complete. If I just had one more. It's a lie that the world is pushing to say, if you just get one more thing, then you will finally be satisfied. And Paul, I think you're saying, that is an endless, joyless trap. <laughs> and that if we live in that, you are deceived because you already know you've gotten some of the things that you longed for and they didn't satisfy, which is why you're still longing for something else. We know this, but we're caught in this deception. The world cannot produce what it's promising. That's the first enemy that we have. The second enemy, he goes on to say, is that we're also deceived uh, into following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, our second enemy is Satan himself. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote that, um, that Christians oftentimes have two errors when we think about Satan. Uh, some say that Satan is everywhere, and some say that Satan is nowhere. Right, the former will say things like, man, every sniffle, pothole, or stub toe is because a demon is after me, right? And, in, and the reality is sometimes we live in Omaha, so there's potholes. Like, that's just the way it is sometimes. But we we want to think, man, anything, anything remotely negative means that Satan's after me. The, the other side uh, would say, no, there, there, there's no Satan or demons. Everything can be rationally thought out. Like, there is no real spiritual attack. It's just bad luck or a coincidence, or we can rationalize everything. C.S. Lewis says both of those actually please Satan. I think the Bible lands somewhere in the middle. The Bible says there, there's just bad things that happen that aren't necessarily a result of Satan. But Ephesians 6, which we're going to get to later this year, says, but we're waging a war against Satan, that there's a spiritually dark realm that is at play right now. We have a very real enemy in Satan. What we need to know and believe is that we do have an enemy. He's not in everything, but he is one of our enemies. And so here's a, a diagnostic question that might sound weird at first, but I want you to think, um, to kind of get at, if, to see how we're under the deception of Satan, I want you to think, have you ever or do you ever struggle to believe the truth of God? To believe the word of God. Now, I know that seems strange, uh, but I think when, when I say, you know, we're following Satan, I don't want that, I, don't, I mean, I'm not saying you're all Satanists, right? That we're all following this, like, Satan and we're all kind of demon army or something, but here's what Satan's attacks often look like. It's not, don't picture horns and fiery red pitchfork. Satan is the father of lies, which means he usually attacks with something good, but slightly twisted. When we see him in the Bible, Matthew 4, he engages Jesus. He's quoting scripture to Jesus, just slightly twisted. In Genesis 3, when he's talking to Adam and Eve, he comes not with a pitchfork, but as an animal. And he, he doesn't just completely say, we need to rebel from God. He just asks these subtle questions that get them to doubt. Did God really say this? Did he really mean this? 
Does a follower of God really have to act this way? Are these really the commands that God has for us? I think some of Satan's greatest ploys against us are not the heinous and grievous sins. It's the subtle doubting of the truth of God. Just the questioning of, is God really for me? Is God really with me? Is what God says in his word actually true, even for me? I heard a preacher once say that if Satan had his way in America, um, it wouldn't be that just wickedness is running rampant, like murder and racism and abuse and hatred and all these things. He said, I think it might look a little bit more like everyone's going to church, everyone's got a job, everyone's nice to each other, everyone's living comfortably and God's word is found nowhere. Because what Satan does is not always the big, dramatic, wicked things. It's good, but slightly twisted. Sure, go to church, but when preacher's talking about sin, just kind of glaze over it, because you've heard that before. Right? Sure, give a little bit of money, but make sure that you've got enough to live on. Like, be a little bit generous, but don't be too generous. Like, sure, do a good deed every day, but dang it, you feel good about it because you're a pretty good person, right? It's good, but slightly twisted. It's not trusting in what God says, but it's just these subtle questioning and doubts. I think for us in our culture, that is primarily more of the attacks that we see from the enemy. And so in following him, what we do is we often think we're pretty good, we do some good things, but it's not according to what God says, it's according to our way. So we have a very real enemy in Satan. Lastly, we have a, a final enemy, which is our flesh. Look at verse 3. He says, not only this, but we also live according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind. The last enemy we face is, oddly enough, ourself. We have the world deceiving us. We have Satan deceiving us. And the Bible says your own sinful nature and your flesh is deceiving you. Now as I was thinking about this this week, I, I actually don't think this is too far off what we already understand. Right? We kind of get that all of our instincts, our natural desires, all those things are, are not that helpful. It's why we make New Year's resolutions. It's why we all want to change in some way. We all want to transform in some way. We all want to get better or healthier or stronger or something. Because we already know that, yeah, maybe in my flesh I just want to eat junk food all day, but I'm going to die at 35, so I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to eat vegetables, right? Like, I, we already know, hey, I don't necessarily want to get up at 6 a.m. in the snow to go work out, but I haven't worked out in six months, and so I'm, I'm not going to be very healthy. That desire in me is not good. We all have this to different extents. There's certain things in our lives that we say, that's maybe what I would naturally want to do, and I need to change. The Bible agrees with you, just takes it one step further and says, it's not just some unhealthy desires, it's all your natural desires. So while we somewhat admit this, the Bible's just pushing you to say, you know what, in myself, my sinful nature, all of my desires are consumed with sin. All of my desires are consumed with myself. I'm not living naturally after God, and I think this is one of the, the lies that we're hearing from our culture today is that however you feel, whatever the actions are, the things that you want to be or do or identify yourself as, that's just fine. What they're saying is Ephesians 2.3 is actually healthy for you. The Bible's saying that's a lie. That's deception. It's why you already know that your desires are not always good. 
we have an enemy in our flesh. There's an old story uh, where a mom is disciplining her little girl because she kicked her brother in the shins and pulled his hair. And so uh, the mom comes to her and says, hey, why did you allow the devil to tell you to kick your brother and pull his hair? To which she responds, well, the devil told me to kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. Right? Meaning, the devil may tempt you, but you got plenty of sin in yourself. There's, st- there's desires and things in yourself that are not righteous, that are not good, that are not holy. We have an enemy in ourselves. Therefore, our souls are not aligned due north. We're not going in the right direction. Because we are dead in sin, we are off track and we need a Savior. Finally, the last phrase of this passage um, kind of says what all this then means. Because we were dead in sin, because we've been deceived, the end of verse 3 says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ultimately, our great problem is that these realities mean we are deserving of wrath, specifically deserving of God's wrath. Um, Now I know that it's not very popular to speak of God's wrath very often, or we, uh, there's kind of a a movement and an idea that, hey, we don't need to really highlight the wrath of God. We have a God who's loving and who's tolerant, and and even the idea of a wrath-filled God sometimes is just unfathomable to people. But I want to paint you a little bit of a picture of why it's good news that God is a God of wrath. That this should not be something we try to hide, but why this is an amazing characteristic of our God. So let me paint you a picture of what the all-loving, tolerant, no-wrath God is really like. A wrathless God means that God would not care about the injustice that's done to you. If you've ever had injustice done to you, uh, a God without any sort of wrath doesn't care. It may be bad, but he loves you, he's tolerant of the action, he's tolerant of all people, so it's okay. A wrathless God would mean a God that doesn't mind murder. He has no hatred or no wrath for murder. He's just okay with it. A wrathless God would mean that God doesn't care about abuse. If you've been abused, a God without any wrath might say, oh, that, that's too bad, But he's just tolerant and loving of all people and all things. A wrathless God wouldn't care. A wrathless God would not care or intervene in any of the pain and suffering that we have in our world. As you've struggled with pain and suffering, a wrathless God would do nothing about it. Would have no feelings of hatred or angst or anger towards that. He would be hands off and tolerant. A wrathless God is, is no good God at all. In fact, a wrathless God would be more wicked than the people that are committing the crimes because he's looking at it and saying, oh well. That's a wrathless God. A wrathless God with no anger is not a good God at all. A wrathless God is a wicked God. The Bible says that that is not our God. Our God cares deeply about the injustice that's done. He has a wrath, a righteous and holy wrath against all the evil and wickedness that's done. Any pain or suffering in your life, God despises it. He hates it. 
anything that causes injustice, oppression, or anything of the like, God has a very real wrath against that. And that is a good thing. Here's the problem. If God is a wrathful God, his wrath isn't just for bad people out there. It's for the wicked man in here. We can't say that God's a God of wrath for all those other things, but the things that I've done wrong, he's okay with. A good, holy, just, righteous, wrathful God hates the sin in my life. Because I've done wrong things to him. I've hurt other people. I've hurt myself with the things that I've done. And God despises that. He hates the sin. And so Paul says, if we are all, all people are dead in sin. And he says, like the rest of mankind, there's nobody who escapes this. It doesn't matter if you're white or black. American or North Korean, Jew or Gentile, old or young, it doesn't matter. All people are children of wrath because all people have sinned and therefore God's wrath is on us. Providence, this is our bad news. This isn't just bad news of other people. This isn't just the bad news of the gospel ethereally. This is our bad news. Before a holy and righteous God... In our sin, we have been deceived, we've walked in deception, and we are deserving of God's good and holy wrath. This means then that you were not halfway up the mountain to heaven when God found you. This means that you weren't almost making it with all your good deeds and Jesus just kind of filled in some and helped you limp along to heaven. This this means you weren't stretching out your arm and he was stretching out his. This means you were dead at the base of the mountain. That's where God came to find you. We were dead in our sin. We had no hope or no life. And that is the exact place that God came down and gave you a savior in Jesus Christ. That's our hope as Christians is that This is the darkness of the cave of where we are. And next week when we come back, we're going to flip the flashlight on for 30 minutes and just gaze at the good news that even though this is our reality, we do have a Savior. That if this is who you are today, you do have a Savior who doesn't just leave you dead, deceived, and deserving of wrath, but who takes that for you. And that's what we're going to sit in next week. So for now, we need to build a longing in our souls for that to come. We cannot glaze over the bad news just to hear the nice things about what Jesus has done. Because what Jesus has done is only good news when we understand Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It's why so often many of us struggle to have an excitement for Jesus day in and day out. I think it's because we don't understand Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. If we knew where we were it would explode in our hearts what we hear next week. So let me pray for us. Father, you are so good that you would, that you would not just tell us that we're fine, um, give us some rules to follow, God, but you love us enough to be honest and tell us that this is who we were. This is where we were when you came to save us. God, we praise you for Jesus, that we do have a Savior. 
that the greatest need in our soul is to become alive, is to be freed from the deception, to have the wrath of God removed from us, and that is what you offer us in Jesus. And so now, as we sing and as we take communion, God, would you give us grace? Would we experience it in a very real way to know that we come forward for communion because this is true of us, and we take communion to remind ourselves of the grace of our Savior Jesus? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.